unveiling of my uh, of my safta and my uncle David zechronim uh, levracha, and uh, it's been a year since they both passed away within two weeks of each other, and uh, I ended up extending for a day because coincided I was asked to speak for the Denver Chaver Kedisha, so uh, I spoke uh, had an opportunity to speak about death. Um, which is a, a favored Rosenfeld topic. And, uh, you know, you go as dark as you possibly want. So it, it's good to be getting back into something which is, I think, the opposite of that, which is the, the life, uh, the, the life force of youth and what youth provide. And we're going to jump into it. If you haven't participated in the previous lectures, uh, you might as well leave right now. You know, there's nothing for you to take out of this. You could also listen to them. Yeah, Gary, I'm, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> you could turn to page uh, six in your, um, in, in the... Um, in the source sheets, in the translations. And you can follow along, of course, in the translation as well. I'll make sure to translate everything. But uh, we're going to begin in the paragraph, Aval Shlomo HaMelech. What's interesting, I just noticed, is that uh, there seems to be a textual variant, not a really significant one, but in the arts, in the, not art scroll, in the Feltheim version, it says Aval, uh, but Shlomo HaMelech said, and in this, uh, what is, you know, the classic Hebrew edition, doesn't have that word Aval, uh, which is which is essentially meaningless for our purposes, but it is important and reminds me of something that a Rebbe Mein Rebbe Eitan Feiner said, which is that when you read Sparim, when, you, when you're looking at translations, it's really, really, really important to make sure you know what you're reading. That includes reading Haskamas, for example. Uh, a figure that we're going to talk about a little bit later on tonight, Rishlama Volba, who was considered one of the greatest uh, Moser figures, uh, one of the greatest Jewish teachers of the past, previous generation. He was the Menahel Ruchani, Mashkiach Ruchani of Yeshivat Ber Yaakov in Eretz Yisrael for about 30 years. Um, he, uh, he wrote Haskama uh, to a series of books. Um, Rabbi something Weinberg, Rabbi Matis Weinberg, I think wrote a, book, a bunch of books called Patterns in Time. They're excellent. If you, if you ever check them out, they're amazing. Um, and, and they're deep, they're filled with sotos, filled with secrets. And um, he has on Hanukkah, he has on Purim, and it's in English. And it's translation and presentation of some of the deepest ideas that you can find in Judaism, and, and really there in full view. So Rabbi Feiner uses an example of, uh, of why you should read the Haskamas, because there's a Haskama for Rabbi Volba in the front of that book. And it looks like a regular Haskama is an approbation, and, uh, it's, and it's, it, it's come practice in, in, in Jewish books. You know, if you're putting out a Sefer, you have uh, approbation from rabbis to say, you know, what's in here is kosher, it's good. You know, you're allowed to read it. Um, some people might say that the only books that they want to read are those without Haskamas. That's a separate story. <laughs> anyway, Reb Volba's Haskamas is untranslated in this book, Patterns in Time on Hanukkah. If you read it closely, Volba is probably an advanced age at that time, so it's very shaky writing. Rabbi Feiner said, if you read the Haskam, he basically says, There are ideas here in the Sefer that it seems to me that are forbidden to be spoken of in English. You can't reveal these kind of secrets. Uh, the Gemara has a line, You don't reveal these things, except that people are going to keep the secret alone. You know, there's that kind of esoteric quality to it. He says, that's why you should read Askama. So, you know, a small textual variant is not going to make, it's not going to be Mala or Mori for us, but it's just an interesting point of looking at it. Uh, another important point of translation that our students pointed out to me is that uh, if you look at the JPS translation and Megillat Esther, and you look at the art school translation of Megillat Esther, there are many differences between them, to be sure. One big difference is that uh, Haman and Bigtan and Teresh in the JPS translation are impaled on stakes, right? And then in the art scroll translation, they are 
hanged. I think that's the word hanged, not hung. Hanged. Hanged, hanged on stakes. It seems like a, it seems like a relatively minor deal, but it's also important because of how one word and also what seems to be the historical context. Apparently, in ancient Persia, I asked somebody about this. In ancient Persia, they didn't uh, they didn't hang people; they impaled them. Yes. Right? Oh, really? So that is that right? Yeah, really? Ask the historian over here. So it's uh, I, that's not sarcastic. Literally, ask the historian over here. But that's all this stuff the about gallows, right? Right. That's what it seems. But the J, you look at the JPS translation, which is also the one that's used in Safaria. Right. This is part of what we teach. Also, we're focused. Uh, I, I I try not to necessarily dedicate a full period to it. But every time we're doing classwork, it's important. I know we haven't started yet, but this is also about Chinuch. It's important to educate children about the digital humanities, digital Judaic humanities. What it means to navigate the Jewish internet to find resources that I, as a rabbi, use, that every, every well-meaning Torah learner should be able to avail themselves of, to know what's legitimate, to know what's not, to know how to suss out uh, material that is, um, that is valid and relevant and stuff that's not quite. Um, unfortunately, if you Google pretty much any Pasuk or any Jewish question, the first thing that comes up on Google search result is Hebrew for Christians yep. uh, is one of the first things that comes up. And I've had many students that, you know, like will be giving a project and I'll tell them, I want you guys to use alhatorah.org, amazing resource, or I want you to use Safaria or the Merkava. And invariably one of them is like, Rabbi, what are the Gospels? And I'm like, <laughs> how'd you even get to this? How'd you, how'd you, how'd you make it there? So that's important, but having them be able to understand how I might look at and be ma'avchein to be able to, to judge different sources and resources is a really important thing also. Let's jump into it. So we're focused again, and it might seem monotonous uh, at this point or uh, a little bit redundant, but we are still dilating on this pasuk, on this verse that forms the linchpin of everything that the Piazetzner is saying over here, which is, uh, which is, which <laughs> Teach child according to their way so that when they get older, he or she will not deviate from it. Now, again, that translation, like all translations, is deeply fraught because it hides or elides a lot of the meaning in this Pasuk. And he's going to continue to focus on this. And we've already explained three different possible interpretations or readings of this Pasuk that help us understand what the Piazetzner is driving at. I want to just review two of them very quickly. The first thing is that we're talking about Alpi darko, not alpi yeudo. The goal of education is not going to be the end result, right? We often talk to people, they'll say, what does the ideal graduate look like? Or what does the, uh, what is the outcomes that you want for all of your students? And I think that a proper response for an educator, unless you're like marketing a school and then you have to talk about uh, that stuff as it is. But when you get deep into it, what we're really talking about is processes. What we're really talking about is how do we, how do we educate a child not to reach a certain goal, the goal is not going to be that when they graduate 12th grade uh, at Bicultural, that it's going to be a finished product. The goal of our education is that the 12th grade graduate is finding themselves taking another step on their journey, another step on the road. The same goes for a child, right? We're speaking in two valences over here, the valence of a student in yeshiva and also a child in your home, is that when a child leaves your home to go out into the world, what you're understanding, and I think a lot of parents fail at this because they expect that I sent you out with a certain type of chinuch, a certain type of education. If you didn't hit that mark when you left, when you, if you had a bad experience somewhere, that that itself is a failure. If you orient yourself to a process, then you understand that this is just another step on the way and everything actually becomes a lot less weighty, a lot less fraught as you go ahead and you look at it. So alpi darko means a derech. It means a path. It doesn't mean alpi yeudo, based on their destination. 
It could have said, Chanoch Lenar for the goal. The goal is not what we should have in mind, right? The process is the goal. And I don't have to be the first person to mention it to say that if you understand that it's about the journey and not the destination, you will find yourself uh, with, uh, with a much happier life. If you're constantly expecting yourself to be at the destination, you will spend a life of, are we there yet? And your life will constantly be a gap between what is and what you want it to be. And, that, and the two will never be betwixt. And you will, you will lead a very disappointed life. And if you focus on your children or your students like that, you'll be very disappointed in them all the time. Right? You'll, you'll constantly be filled with disappointment because how come you're not hitting the goals or hitting the marks that I want you to be hitting? So that's the first one. Also, another important thing that I want to focus on now is that it says alpidarko. Now, we've been giving a lot, we've been shifting a lot into the realm of what a child is, is leaning towards, the proclivities of a child or a student or an adult that's starting out to learn. What's important to remember is that it's not the end-all be-all to say that the child decides on the, on the terms and conditions of their education, of their chinuch. In, in, in our houses, in our homes, and in our classrooms, it's important for a teacher, the best kind of teachers are the ones that are facilitators, that they give the, they give the box, they give the, the rules of the game for which students can go ahead and flourish. Alpidarko means that not everything is going to be decided by the child. There are... Um, I'm always fascinated by uh, Montessori schools and, 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 and how that philosophy of education, and I'm talking now true Montessori education, not what a lot of people call Montessori education, which is like, yeah, we do like Montessori in the morning, but in the afternoon we have like, you know, kids are sitting and learning math because <laughs> they have to hit core curriculum or whatever. True Montessori, which on one foot is basically that a child is going to drive their own education, is going to drive based upon their own uh, instincts and their own uh, proclivities, their desires for what to learn. So I think the reason why that might not be for everybody is because if I were to go into a classroom and say, okay, and, and, I'm, and I'm oversimplifying, of course, but for the purposes of our discussion, to allow a child to have the full discretion at what it is that they learn and what it is that they're going to do is sometimes going to yield deleterious effects. It's not going to accomplish the kind of learning, the kind of, the kind of growth that we're looking to. We have to set the terms. We have to set the framework for it. And that does mean that there are going to be times where the choice on the side of the child is not going to really be present. Uh, the genius is to be able to find choice within our parameters. Do you want to go to Mincha, mincha here or do you want to go to Mincha there? Uh, when you're trying to get your child to go to Mincha, that actually is a much better question. Do you want to go to Mincha or do you not want to go at all? That's, that's a way in which you elevate the choice within your own parameters. But we'll talk more about that. Shlomo HaMelech. Shlomo Melch was not just teaching us the goal of education. For looking for the goal, the goal of Jewish education, the goal of Jewish parenting is that when they get older, as they grow older, meaning not when they hit some magical age that we say now they're a complete human being, but that as they grow older, as they embark on that process of aging and growing up in life, that they don't deviate from it, that they don't deviate from being what we like to call lifelong learners. People who are constantly growing, constantly having that kind of uh, ben aliyah or bat aliyah mindset. I am constantly looking for growth. I am constantly looking at every aspect of life. Every part of life is an educational learning opportunity. Every test, I'm on my, uh, you know, we, we just had our, we just had a, a newborn. And so, you know, some people come and like, oh, you've been there before, right? And, and the real answer is, no, uh, not really, right? We'd never had four before. And also 
every child is very different. And uh, when you have a fourth child that's colicky, just because your third child was colicky doesn't really change that for you. And everything is a brand new. And the tests that you thought that you went through on the third child and the second child, the first child, those tests actually come up again. How do you fight when you're both, uh, when you're both uh, sleep deprived? How do you deal with other children now when you have a demand for attention? Those tests, that's part of lifelong learning is constantly seeing this is not a battle that's been won, but this is a battle, maybe a battle is a bad way to put it. <laughs> Feels like it sometimes. This is a challenge. This is a, a problem that needs to constantly be renegotiated. The best teachers that I, uh, the, that I have ever encountered are teachers. I remember I did a model lesson at a school, one of my first model lessons, and they introduced me to a Navi teacher who was old enough at the time to be my grandfather. And, and, I, and, and my instinctual, you know, I apologize for this, my instinctual ageist approach was like, how could this guy ever be relevant to, uh, you know, to 2012 or 2011 eighth graders? It's impossible. Turns out that like afterwards I'm having a conversation talking to the principal, this is the most popular teacher in the school. That's a lifelong learner. That's a person who's not saying, right, we've all had teachers who, who after they finish their lesson plans for the first two years, Hey, friends. After they finish the lesson plans for the first two years, you know, they kind of stick to it. And, you know, they go through the same thing. In YU, we used to say with professors, you know, at a certain point you get Masora, you get tradition from them. So that when a test comes up, you know, you've, you, know what, you know what was on the test because people had it. Maybe I shouldn't cop to this on the recording, but you know what people had before you. A teacher needs to be able to change it up. The best teachers themselves are lifelong learners. The best teachers themselves are people who are constantly moving and, and, uh, and, and reinvigorating their learning and their, and their materials. And I've seen this done. I've seen teachers who say, I had a really successful year, I had a really good year, and I have the same, uh, the same class next year, and I'm going to totally change it up in the summer. Take risks also, right? It's easy to go with what works, especially with parenting. But I think that a big pitfall that parents and teachers fall into is assuming that this, what worked for this class is going to work for the kids in the next grade. I've seen this, I've seen this all the time. And I know we've only done one line of text, but I want to give you one practical real-life example. Uh, my first class that I ever taught was sophomore honors Gemara class in SAR. And I had a class the first year. I ended up, my big break was that, um, was a great teacher, went on maternity leave. And uh, I was a fellows assistant teacher in her class. And she said, why not give Josh a shot and Josh will teach the class. That was my first teaching experience, really um, fully in front of a class. And it was great. It was, it was everything I was told about how bad your first year would be just turned out to not be true. The, the, the students in the class were amazing. They, they, they let me find my sea legs and it was really beautiful. And then they said, we're going to give you that class. That'll be your class next year. Awesome. So I went ahead and I taught the same material that I had prepared late at night for that class next year, and it was, not, it was not a very successful year. It was flat. I didn't feel the same, kind of, the same kind of uplift that I had when I was coming home. And then I found out that this class, there was a large component of that class that when they were freshmen, they had had a very, very hard year because the school that they had been in the year before had undergone a wholesale change of the educational leadership, and they were essentially adrift in their eighth grade. The nature and the makeup of the students in the class. You might just say, well, how different could one class of high school sophomores in a modern Orthodox co-educational uh, Judaic setting be? And the answer is huge. The differences could be massive because you have no idea what those students are coming into the class with their history. Same thing with your kids. You see people that try and treat their first kid like their second kid or their second kid like their third kid. And they eventually, kids let them know that you're doing the wrong thing, right? And you'll find out. 
unfortunately, sometimes it takes people a long time to realize what worked for one child is not going to work for another child. So, The idea is to create lifelong learners that even as they grow older, they do not deviate from this wisdom. They do not deviate from being lifelong learners. But Shlomo told us exactly how you get to that, exactly how you arrive at that goal. He told us, he spelled it out for us. He said, To teach them according to their path, to look at them closely and to see who they are, that's going to be the way that you accomplish this goal. Both parts of the Pasuk are complementary. They go together with each other. Now these are our villains over here. The villains, maybe that's a strong word, but the people that we're trying to not be are the mitzave, the, the commandant, and the margil, and, and the drill instructor, the person who's just about rote learning. Those people, the people who rely only on commanding, on, 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 rote, on rote repetition, they don't need to pay attention to the student in front of them or to the child in front of them to know exactly what their nature and what their mindset is. These, he... Again, this is being written in, in, in the turn, at the fin de siècle. This is being written over 100 years ago. And, and what, he's, what he's talking about is looking, you would read in, you know, in, 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 uh, in some educational journal, Chronicle of Higher Education, something would be the, the whole child. That's exactly what we're looking at. Because people that rely on commanding, on instructing and saying, this is what you must do. And here are our routines that you must adhere to. Somebody that does that, doesn't need to pay attention to the child or to the student in front. Ladas is tivon v'sichlon, to know their nature. Alav rak l'tzavos, asay kach v'kach v'daylo. All they need to do and all they suffice with doing, you say, do this or do that. And, and that's it. I've done my job as an educator. I've done my job as a parent. Gamenu margish chov ba'atzmo l'tapel b'chol tamme v'tamme b'fnei atzmo. That kind of educator, that kind of, 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 of commander, that kind of person who just gives diktats and says, follow this and don't do differently. Or here are the rules and routines in our class and do not ever deviate from that. And we're going to stand in this way. We're going to walk in this way. We're going to talk in this way. And this is what we're going to do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and every single day without deviation. They may have found success in the past in doing that or they might have what, another pitfall. They might have the quiet classroom, right? It might not be chaotic. Our homes might not be chaotic, but they're also not going to be happy places. They're also not going to be dynamic places. They're also not going to be places where true learning is going to occur. In order for that to be accomplished, you cannot rely on sevoy, you cannot rely on command, and you cannot rely on margil, on hergil, on rote and, and continuous routines alone. What he's really saying is that the main issue is that the mitzarve or the margil, these kind of individuals have an unwillingness or an unwillingness to learn, or an ignorance of the student of the child as a person. A great parent and a great educator is going to do their best. I mean, the, the most, you know, the most joyous things. You know, we had, uh, my, my wife was, uh, Hani was, uh, was at Gan today, and they were telling us something about Judah, and, and we walked away, the reason that we walked away so uplifted was because, you ever have this, it's the best feeling of a, of a parent when they leave parent-teacher conferences this Thursday, Right, reminder, when they leave and say they, they get our kid, they know our kid. That's true, by the way, even when things aren't going great, even when you're struggling, even when you're struggling for somebody to say they know our kid, they know what our kid is going through, that's worth its weight in gold. The worst thing you should come by, and not the worst thing, but again, the flat saying, yeah, your kid follows the rules, your kid does what they're told to do, 
It's not, that's, that's not, that's not the job. That's not what an educator can do. That's not what an educator is able to go ahead and accomplish. That's the Mitzavar Margil Bilvad. Now, sometimes halavai, that we get to that level of decorum or that level of, uh, that level of, of, of routine. And, and this is, again, we said last two weeks ago, three weeks ago. It's not, it's not to say that routines and norms and commands and, and, and duties are, are, are bad. But for too long and for too many people, that's the end-all, be-all of education. And if my classroom is quiet, that is a mark of success in some people's minds. Or if my home is quiet, that's a mark of success. Sometimes the joy of a parent is, is hearing the cacophony in your house. Sometimes it's, about, sometimes it's more about you. It's about, and I struggle with this sometimes. I have like a thing with mess. Sometimes just being able to look at the carpet and see toys here and see snacks over here and to see, you know, a, a, a diaper that's been changed you forgot to throw out. Maybe it's a little gross, right? But to see these things is not the mark of disorder, but it's the mark of vibrancy. Maybe that's what we should be looking for. Maybe that's what we should learn to orient ourselves and to say, this is what we embrace. This is what we're looking for over here. He continues. He continues. He says that once you know that, right? Once you know who your children are, once you understand who they are, as opposed to the Margil Mitzava, Yuchuhu, right? So he says, oh, sorry, he's still, he's still ragging on the Mitzava and the Margil. He says, Yuchuhu Litzavos Laharbe Talmidim B'nei Gil Echad Sivoy Echad. It's easy sometimes for a teacher with that level of gravitas or authority to give one command for many students in one classroom in an undifferentiated way. You know, you know where that's appropriate? In the army. That's appropriate in the military. In the military, right, if I were to go to my commanders and be like, Hamfakeid, ani habokir tzarich chamesh takot yoter. Right? Do you have 10 minutes to wake up? Today I'm feeling like five more minutes. You know, it wasn't such a great night for me. Shmirah didn't go well. He would, say, he would say, get on the floor and give me 50 right now, right? But if a child comes and says, you know, Rebbe or Mora, I wasn't able to finish this assignment in time. I, I don't think I really understood it. So, so the, the best kind of teacher is going to be like, let's, let's find out. I mean, the best teachers are going to be people that are able to level some sort of a soft consequence while at the same time supporting and saying, okay, we're going to go ahead and work on this together. I'll give you opportunity. Now, they don't know. They don't know that it's not, I'm never going to let something like that hurt them. I'm never going to let something like that go and, and, and hit the record, you know, the, the line that our uh, teachers used to be. If you don't do well in your sixth grade Gemara test, you're not going to get into a good high school. If you don't get into a good high school, you won't get into a good college. If you don't get into a good college, you won't get a good job. That was like the line. And, and then you'll end up like me. That was the, <laughs> that was the end. Of, <laughs> that was the joke. Halavai. So you could give one command to everybody, and that's going to be sufficient. It's, it's easy. It's a shortcut to do this way. Yeah, Ben. I'm wondering how we can make this class a little messier, a little more like the rough. I'm talking too much. Say something. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what I have more. That, that's what I said. So, so you're, you're definitely right, right? So, so it, I mean, just let's, let's get meta for a second. Right now in the last two classes, and I, and I paid lip service to this in the beginning. I said, I want this to be more dialogical. I want us to be able to hear thoughts. I think Elisa spoke up the first week and said mm-hmm. something. Right? You had something, somebody had something smart to say. Uh, Gila, you said, so, you said stuff in the past. I want it to be like that. I want it to get to that kind of way. But oftentimes, especially in, in lecture, there, there is a time for lecture. There is a time for doing something like that. There is time for speeches. I think that when, when we are deliberate and mindful about how we're doing things, right, to ask a question like that is, I think, an indicator of this. Right? So we would go ahead. If, I'm not doing post and pre-observations on these. I mean, if I were to go with the teacher 
in a classroom, so you do a, a formal observation. So you would go ahead and you would have a pre-meeting with the teacher say, hey, here are the, the things I'm looking for based on our last observation or based on the last three quick visits that I've paid to your classroom. Right? So here's the, you know, the three things that are going really well, and here's the three, uh, the three glows and the three grows. That's how I write it in my, uh, in my emails. And, um, and then afterwards, we would go ahead and say, okay, let's do a post-mortem. Let's see what worked. Let's see what didn't work. And, and if, for example, I'm not seeing, I'm seeing more of a sage on a stage, right, that somebody's just talking and talking and talking and giving out facts. So we'll go ahead and we'll say, what are some tools, what are some resources we could use to change that up? If I wanted to take, so this partially has to do with my feelings, you know, uh, how, how comfortable I feel teaching this material, how comfortable I feel as we get to know each other. This is hopefully for a long term. But then if I want to get really cool and, so then you start taking risks and, and we say, okay, let's maybe pair up for the next paragraph and let's see what you guys do with this dilemma. And those kind of problems do come up or maybe let's do a little bit of writing, right? If I were really cool, I would say, I'd say, I mean, this would be, I'm not this cool. I'm not that kind of, I'm not, I'm not that guy, but, but some of the best teachers I've seen, Dove Zinger comes to mind. If you don't know Dove Zinger, you should, find, you should find him, you should Google him, you should learn about him. So Dove Zinger, we had a Chabura once in an apartment, in my friend's apartment, and he spent the entire, he spent the entire shear on one Pasuk, right? Az nidbru yirei Hashem, echav. I forgot the rest of the Pasuk. Uh, fears of God should speak to each other, and they should strengthen each other in faith. He said, okay. And we were expecting a you know, rabbi from Israel to bombard us with sources and to show us how learned he was and everything like that. And then he went around the room and he had everybody say, said, we're going to spend three minutes in mindfulness about this Pasuk. He literally did this. Rav Dov Zinger could do this. Josh Rosenfeld can't. He said, we're going to spend three minutes. We're going to think about this Pasuk. No Rashi, no Perushim, nothing like that. Just translation. What does this Pasuk mean to you? And then we went around the room. And by the end, I mean, there must have been about, you know, 10 of us there. By the end, that was an hour and a half on one Pasuk. And then there were people who like the second go round when they were riffing off of other people or people who were near tears because of what that Pasuk had, had brought up for them. It's possible, it's possible that as we get more comfortable with this format and as we learn, to make this more messy would be something like, what is the time? And again, I don't feel comfortable because part of it is for me, uh, to be radically honest, part of it is me is like, I don't want to scare anybody away. I'm just starting off the first time we've done this. But if I wanted to scare people and take a risk, I'd say, what was the last time that you commanded a child to do something and how did it work out for you? So what you'll get from me is I'll tell you something honest from my own thing and, and what it got for me, do your Russian math, never works, right? Let's sit down and work on Russian math together, sometimes works, right? <laughs> that's, that's kind of, that's, that's how I would see something like this getting messy. Yihi Ratzon, right? Maybe we're already getting on this evening. Yihi Ratzon, that would be something that we would feel comfortable we're enough. We're only on page eight, so we have- We're only on page eight. eight. <laughs> right, there's, there's gonna be more meat and stuff is gonna be problematized. Already on the next page, there's a problem that I flagged that I wanted to toss out to you guys, but that's exactly how we would go ahead and do that. I'm not saying that we can't even do it tonight, but, but that's, that would be a goal. Of, of, that's what a, a circle means. That's what, that's, that's what I, I hopefully am driving at because just listening to me, I mean, maybe, maybe it's like somewhat pleasant for the first 20 minutes. Um, and, then, and then afterwards, it's like you leave and it's another sheer, right? There's just... I'm not the first person to teach Chovas Tamidim. Rabbi Moshe Weinberger has Shirman Chovas Tamidim. The spoiler is he did a better job than me, right? It's that the goal is hopefully it's for us 
when I talk about school, you know which school I'm referring to. When I talk about kids, you know which kids I'm referring to. When I talk about my own family, you're in my house, right? So you know, you know exactly what the context, right? Those fights happened in this very room, right? That's, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm driving at. So it's a really good question. I don't know this other rabbi, but you're a rabbi who I like, and I'm down to do any of the things that you described. So I will. I, so you have my promise that I that involves a little bit more. That's another thing, by the way. I said in parentheses, um, this is totally separate. This, but like people ask, you know, like educational philosophy, coaching philosophy with teachers. When I say mitzave or it does have something to do with this. When I say mitzave or margil, the commander and the person who's in, engaged in rote teaching. All right, so what, what people think that you need to be when you don't have that is you need to be uh, what, uh, what Dr. Paul Shaviv wrote in a very influential article he called the Pied Piper. Right? The Pied Piper is the person who's going to be relying on, on charisma. The person who's going to be relying on, on their, you know, their ability to be funny and to tell jokes and to, and to kind of eventually what happens, the net effect is like an obfuscation of meaning, an obfuscation of goals because it's all about the person rather than, than, than the material. And uh, unfortunately, it could yield. Uh, once I read that article, I, I, I've been attempting to change my own teaching style ever since. I'm like, oh, I, I know that guy. I, I don't want to do that. Right? The best are going to combine charisma and rigor. That's, uh, but, but when we tell teachers, they'll say, but I don't have it in me. I don't have the ability to be, uh, you know, to, to be this dynamic person who can elicit alpidarko from students. And the answer is, it, is always, almost always, yes, you can. And the answer is one word, it's preparation. It's preparation. The prepared teacher, the prepared parent is the best teacher, is the best parent. If you go into a classroom, and I've been guilty of this myself, especially my earlier years of teaching. If I go into a classroom, for whatever reason, it might be a good reason, I may have been you know, involved in some very important things, but if I think I'm going to rely on my personality alone, or I'm going to rely on my charisma alone, going in front of a group of people or going in front of a classroom. So students have an amazing superpower. Children have a superpower. They could sniff that out in a second. They know you walk into a classroom unprepared. They know in the first five minutes. They know that you're finished. You will be exhausted. You might, you might even hold on to them by the end of 40 minutes. It will be the longest 40 minutes of your entire life. Right? You might take your kids and like uh, on a Sunday, if you don't structure it the right way, Right? If you don't plan it necessarily, right? when I say planning, I, I don't necessarily mean like we have to do a trip. I just mean like how we're going to run our day, how we're going to structure that day. It's going to be a long day. It's going to be a long day. If you prepare, if you do the work beforehand, that 40 minutes, so you'll be able to elicit this kind of complicating things, having fun with it. You'll know what kind of discussions I want to have, you know, what kind of activities I want my students to be doing during class. It'll be the fastest period in your life. It'll go by and it'll feel like, You'll have to, best classes, students look up, they'll be like, it's over. That was the bell, right? Or your kids look at you and you say, mommy, Abba, right? The weekend went by too quickly. I can't believe we have to go, by, we have to go back to school tomorrow, right? Because you were, time flies when you're having fun, right? So, so it will be a goal. I, I would, that's preparation. That's preparation. Can't be done. The worst thing is when people think that they could ju- just jump into that kind of stuff and I'm prepared and then it's... Uh, then it, could get, then it could get really weird, actually. <laughs> then, <laughs> so let's finish up this paragraph, and then, I, then maybe I'll, I'll end with a question for us. Um, any other questions, though, before I continue? No? Thanks for that, though, Ben. It's really, 
It's important. So he says, this mitzvah and margil, they could just tell one thing to everybody. And this is strong words. He says, this kind of a person, this kind of a teacher or parent, what you realize about them is that it's really just about them. It's about my commands, about my diktats, it's about what I want to happen. And there's never a moment's consideration for what the child might want. That's a teacher, that's, that's something a parent or teacher should always be asking. I'm going to command, and that's going to be all my efforts. But the mechanich, which is the opposite, the, not, the, not the antithesis, but the opposite approach. Somebody that uses these, but just as tools. And has totally different educational or parenting philosophy. The mechanic that wants to reveal the soul, that wants to see what kind of a child is sitting in front of me. What kind of an adult, if I'm teaching adults, what kind of a person is this that I am teaching right now? That's hidden and that is in occlusion. These are two words, but I think that they're, they're meaningful. They're not just here as synonyms, right? Timuna means, we would say something is tamun under chol, right? Timune chol, you bury something under under uh, sand, buried, and genuza. Genuza is hidden. You put things in a geniza. These two words are not just shameless on their duffin. They're not just synonymous with one another, but they talk about the two ways in which a child's soul, a child's personality can be hidden under. Sometimes it's just something else that's covering it up. Sometimes a child is anxious about something and all you have to do is, is remove that anxiety or all you have to do is assuage some fear and it could come out. Other times it's ganus. Other times it's consciously hidden. It's a process of bringing it out slowly and letting them know that there's something there that they might not even know about themselves. I'll give an example of what I mean by that. I know that we're moving slowly and I'll also take feedback. If we could fly through these pages, but I don't think that this is what this is about. Um, very quiet student. One of the things I love about Color War is that Color War, as trivial as it seems sometimes, Color War allows uh, different, uh, different types of learners to emerge and allows different types of people to shine. It's, and it's absolutely true. It's one of the beautiful things about it. And you give them the framework. I mean, Color War is some, I had a teacher who came to this who said, we should do, kids were like happily running down the hallway to some activity. Without a teacher telling them, they're like, we should just do Color War all year. Right? <laughs> should open up a school and be like Color War Academy. Right? Can you imagine? Maybe. Can you imagine? House points. I know that in, in our fifth grade, we have the, the house Gryffindor. And I've, I, don't know, I don't know Harry Potter. I don't even know what house my daughter is in. But but that competitive, healthy, competitive nature. And, and one of the, my favorite things is seeing the kids that all of a sudden, when it comes time to say to them, we have banner, we have banner. And you see this erstwhile quiet student comes up and just produce something lasting, beautiful, and just shining in the process. And all of a sudden student that hasn't spoken in class, maybe a handful of times all year, is like directing their peers and telling them, this is what I need, go get me that. And something amazing comes out as a result. And when they sign their name on that, that's like, that's chinuch. That's what it's about. That's what it's all about. You're up. Um, so there's a stereotype, I'm going to say something that's similar to that in a different uh, context. There's the stereotype of the theater kids. Right? Yeah. The theater, the bicultural performance. Yes. Plug, plug it's coming up. <laughs> yeah. Buy, yes. Your tickets. Buy your tickets. Buy your tickets. So I've, been, I've been performing music in the show for years and years, and what I say to my wife every year is it is unbelievable. The kids who shine on that stage, who, you know, nine out of ten months of the year yeah. are in the background, are quiet, are, I don't, know, I don't know what other words to use, but they're reserved, not. Reserved, yeah. Reserved, whatever, but that's their place. 
to shine. Yes. And, and, and I think this goes to the notion of teaching children in their own way, finding what they connect to, what helps them shine is not the same as what helps other kids shine. So that's coming up. and That's exactly mm-hmm. right. Uh, one of the things that my daughter has told me she's really enjoying um, this process of being part of it the first time, one of the, the best things she says when she comes home really excited, um, talk about Mitzavah or Margil, she says, uh, Janice or Nofi, they saw that I did something this way and they changed, they changed it up, right? Mm-hmm. They changed it up in order for that to happen. Right? They saw, so that's amazing. Think about that. They saw me doing something good. I was doing something alpidarko. And the Mechanech, Janice and Nofi over here, the Mechanech decided that, it's go- that we're going to change the framework for that. How many times can we say that? Uh, I mean, like, can you imagine a student like, coming in? Um, I mean, maybe it, it happened. You know, like, uh, you know, Schoenberg came into his uh, classical music lesson one time. And he said, you know, I, I think I'm going to go atonal here. And, and I wonder what his music was, classical music teacher. You cannot do that. It's forbidden. Right? But... but but he changed the face of music or, you know, like uh, Clifford Still or, uh, or, you know, Jackson Pollock, they come and they say, I'm going to do something a little bit different. They use a framework, they do something within that framework and, and they shine. They see the, the paradigm now shifts for them. That's awesome. That's really, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about over here. That's, that's a perfect example. Uh, let's, let's finish this paragraph. So he says, and, and I think I, I want us to really focus on, on that these words are significant. And maybe, I hope I'm not just reading too closely. Timuna is something that's just hidden, that's very easy to be revealed. And sometimes it's ganus. Sometimes it's a much more long, drawn-out process. It's something that's maybe been deliberately hidden, right? So to find that soul, the goal is the soul, to get to the human being this child in front of us to get them in touch with themselves, to get them recognizing who they are. I would say that the process of education, I'm going to say it's a lot of things. The process of education is getting a child to recognize who they are. Hopefully who they are and what we try and do in Jewish education is to recognize that a proud Jew, a knowledgeable Jew, a Jew that's committed to Torah and mitzvahs and to rectifying the world around them, that that is who they are as well. They're an artist, but they're also a Jew. They're, they're a math scholar, but they're also a Jew, right? They have all these things to recognize, to show them, here's a soul, right? To, to look out at a room in an assembly and say, there's, there's, there's 300 souls in front of me. Not 300 students, not 300 potential behavior problems, not 300, uh, not 300 tuitions, but three, 300 souls, 358 to be exact, that are sitting in front of me right now. So he says, to, to allow that to develop and to ignite, that it should turn into an eshamala, a divine flame, to kindle, to kindle a spirit. This is really important. Right? And this is Hasidic, and this is modern, all at the same time coming from the Piazzetz, and it's progressive, that they should, the entire essence of this child, even kochos gufo, even their physical abilities. We talked about theater, same thing when I have, when I have my athletes, right? Same thing when I go to those, those middle school basketball games, you guys know my line for our, for our basketball players, anybody heard my line, right? So, so how do you tap into competitive sports kids? 
right? Never, never mind that I, well, I shouldn't even put it on court. Never mind that I watched the NBA highlights, not only because I like watching it, but they think that I've seen every single game in the league the <laughs> night before, right? And the kid that's closed up and you go and you say, hey, you know, how about that Knicks game last night? You know, Julius Randle's on fire, right? And they're like, oh my gosh, he knows about our stuff. But I go to them and I say, in this area, you're going to excel. I want you guys to dominate, right? To dominate the other team and to show no mercy and to make a kiddush Hashem, right? Three lines. That it's chinuch before a basketball game. It's chinuch in the locker room also to show that even their kolchos gufa that they should be thinking about Hashem. They should be thinking about the goal, the soul within them when they play. That that hopefully the desire is, is that they should have a thirst for Torah for their entire lives. A thirst for Hakadosh Baruch Hu, Thirst to be proud Jews for their entire lives. The real educator, the real parent, knows how to get onto the floor. Knows how to get under the table with the child and to laharkin. Laharkin means to, to lean over, to lean over and to hear them closely, to put your ear to the ground. To access your inner child and to, to penetrate into kasnusa into You can read this in two ways. You can read this to the lowness and to the, to the youth of the child themselves. I think a more radical and maybe a, a, a nicer reading is to access their own inner child. My own lowness, my own smallness, the moments when I didn't know how to, how to go through a line of Gemara, the moments when I didn't know how to read a Pasuk, when I was sounding out the Hebrew letters, when I was first learning to daven and struggled with it, to find my own nemichus, even though I'm, I'm a rabbi and I'm supposed to be a teacher, I'm supposed to have it all figured out, spoiler alert, I don't, but to get to that point, to access your own nemichus, your own smallness, your inner child, that's where you'll find success. Until you finally access that spark within them that you're going to turn into a flame that's going to illuminate the world. This is what it means. This is what it means to raise children. To raise them means to, doesn't mean say, it doesn't mean to raise, to, to pick up. It means to get down with them, to grow together with them. Right? If I could... Sometimes, you know, you interview teachers and you want to look at how, you want to look at what their skills are. If I, if I had my druthers, like the test, I mean, you can't set this up. I just want to see teachers who are able to get onto the floor, right? What is teachers able to sit on the floor with the child? Teachers who only know, uh, I, had a, I had a friend told me once he was, uh, he was interviewing a, a teacher, impeccable credentials, and this was in a high school. And he said, you know, like second to last period or a period before lunch came out. And seniors came, you know, you know, bum rushing down the hallway. And he saw, he saw that this teacher had just given a great model lesson. Went like this to the side of the wall, right? It was very normal. He said, like, it wasn't like he was threatened. Went like this to the side of the wall with like this look of fear in his face. He said, this person's not going to be successful here. You have to learn what it means to be in a hallway and understand that seniors going to be rushing to lunch. And they're going to be walking there and to be able to smile through that. Even when you're saying, I need you all to slow, to slow down and to watch out for the other people in the hallway also. That's where the best are going to come from. Access that nemichus. To be able to say to students who are struggling in tefillah, say, hey, I struggled too. When I was your age, I didn't want to wear a kippah either when I was in school. To access that nemichus and, to, and to, to kneel down and to hear the inner child, that's where you will find, that's where you'll have the success. This is what it means to raise child. It means, it means to, to bring them up to that wider vantage point, to, to see from your experience, to see from your past, and to see from, from your failures in every area, and to be able to impart that wisdom to them. Is, is that what it's saying? Or is it saying to instill the sense within them to discover that within themselves? 
he's he's right. You would you would expect it to say because in here it's not saying I'm projecting my experiences onto you. Rather, I mean, there's nothing about teaching in here. It's strictly about instilling something in the student that then sparks something within them. That 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 you're maybe you're leading by example. Maybe you're, but but you're not projecting any of your experience onto them. You're simply instilling this love and. And that, to me, is, is how you prevent them from being disconnected, is not... For me, the, one of the biggest moments in my life was learning the difference between school and education. Yeah. Like, I was in community college, my whole life shifted. I was like, oh, this isn't school, I'm learning. And what was the difference? What was the difference? I loved it. No, but but, but like, what, what, what would you say was the difference between school and education? If you could put that into a line. One was didactic and one, the other was instilled. So one I, came from here and the other one came from here. So would, would you say, just for, to understand, would you say that what he's talking about over here is education or school? Education? Yeah. I, but but no, I don't think he's talking about either. I think he's talking about the mechanism to arrive there. That's right. That's right. I, I want to be very explicit. Right? We're on page... We're on page uh, nine now of the book. This first section is the Siach and Melam This is the pep talk before the more involved work comes afterwards. What, what he's really talking about right now is what is the posture that we adopt before we embark on that work of, of I love the way you said, of education, right? What, what, is, what is our mindset? What is our orientation before we're going to embark on this work? This stuff might, might be intuitive to you, it might even be something that, that, that people have sort of in the back of their minds so they know this is the right thing. But first you need to be reminded of it. Or you, you need at least to bring it to the fore before you start going through a manual of how education works. Right? Hopefully that he's not going to be talking about school. But for many people, it's not going to be intuitive that this is the, the approach that they adopt. Right? For many people, they're going to, they're going to I'd say, the mitzave and the margil, that's more school. That's more school. Factories, right? That's, that's what the Piazzetta, when he makes him radical, is he's saying, no, 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 no. There's a spiritual approach that you need. There's a spiritual posture that you need to adopt to this work of parenting and, and teaching. This is, again, this is for parents also, not just teachers, right? And parents should see themselves as teachers, and teachers should see themselves as a kind of parent as well, the Gemara tells us, right? We are, we are standing at the, at the cusp of, of all of the education talk that's going to be coming afterwards. It's a really, really astute point. And I think, uh, unless anybody else has, uh, has a comment, I think there was one other comment. No, if not, then we're going to, 